Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insight that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt Handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 112 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. This episode is a conversation with the writer Gareth L. Powell. Gareth is an award-winning author from the UK. His alternative history thriller, Akak Macaque, won the 2013 BSFA Award for Best Novel, spawning two sequels, and was shortlisted in the Best Translated Novel category for the 2016 Seon Awards in Japan. His short fiction has appeared in a host of magazines and anthologies, and his story Ride the Blue Horse made the shortlist for the 2015 BSFA Award. Most recently, he has written a trilogy of novels for Titan Books. The first of these, Embers of War, is published today, 20th of February 2018, as I'm recording this. The second in the series, Fleet of Knives, will be out in 2019, and the final instalment, Light of Impossible Stars, will be published in 2020. He's also currently writing a crime thriller, and you can find him on Twitter at, at Gareth L. Powell. There's a couple of things I want to mention before we get into that conversation. The first of which is that I'm delighted that so many of you downloaded the last episode of the podcast, which was my conversation with the book coach, Jenny Nash. I have to go back four years towards the beginning of the podcast to find a more popular episode. So if you have just joined recently and you're new to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast, welcome. And I would encourage you to check out the back catalogue of episodes to see if there's a specific topic that you're interested in hearing about. We've covered a wide range of topics and issues in over 100 episodes over these last four years. Anything from story structure to character and from genre to world building and voice. So if there's something that you would be interested in and hearing about there's an index of topics on my website andrewjchamberlain.com on the podcast directory page so you can easily access something that you might be interested in and that podcast directory is also at the back of the book that accompanies the podcast the creative writers tool belt handbook if you have purchased that book thank you very much i really hope it is proving to be valuable to you and i would be extremely grateful if you could leave a review for the book on amazon that would be immensely helpful to me In other news, some of you will know that I have just announced another speaking date. I will be at the Equip to Write conference, which is for aspiring and established novelists. And that is happening on Saturday, the 28th of July, 2018 in Dundee in Scotland. And I'll be joined by the novelist, broadcaster and speaker, Wendy H. Jones. And together we will be giving you the tools that you really need to get to work on your novel, including digging into the detail of story structure, showing you how to write that killer first line, exploring the light and dark side of our writing and showing you how to energise your work with some practical tips that you can apply straight away. And the cost for that day, including refreshments and lunch, is going to be just £40. But you guys can get there even cheaper than that because as podcast listeners, you can get a massive 25% discount on that price by just adding the voucher code E2WNI when you book a ticket. That's the letter E, the number two, and then the letters WNI. And that'll mean you can come to the whole day, including refreshments and lunch, for just £30. If you're interested, you can book via my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, or go to the Equipped to Write website, which is equippedtowrite.co.uk. And if you just want to find out more, do drop me a line. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. So back to my guest for this episode, Gareth Powell. Here's our conversation 
I hope you enjoy it. So, Gareth, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. Thank you for agreeing to have a chat with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. So I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody, and that is when you think back to your childhood and when you were growing up, what were the formative influences on your life in terms of books and film and TV and maybe music and culture? Well, both my parents were teachers. Um, right. so I learned to read before I went to school so there were always books I was always reading from a very early age yeah. I also some of my earliest memories are watching episodes of the original Star Trek back in oh, yeah. 73 74 yeah. on a black and white tv and being very excited about that and then when we got a little bit older and started reading more my mum used to take us to the local library every week and we'd get out four or five books and, and read them right every week so i mean books books were always there and i was always reading um and always interested in sci-fi as well yeah yeah okay in terms of sci-fi what attracted you first what kind of things did you pick up maybe in the library or maybe after that well i was quite fortunate that for a, a small village library there was a, a huge sci-fi section oh, that's cool so i just i just worked my way through. i think i started with things like brian earnshaw's dragonfall 5 series yeah for younger readers, which which I remember very fondly, there was another book. I think it was called Space Family Robinson. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was about a rocket ship taking a load of bikes somewhere. That's all I really remember about it. Right. Um, and then from there, I just moved on through um, Heinlein. Larry Niven was an early an early. I picked up the Ringworld Engineers because I liked the the cover, and that that was quite a, a huge kind of mind-blowing moment. Arthur C. Clarke short stories. You know, I, I worked my way all through through those at, at, yeah. at quite a young age so, and then the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy of course when yes. i was about 10 that yeah. was that was quite a moment and that was the first i got into it and then yeah. i obviously just went through the books yeah of course go, yeah. i think i read all, all three of them in an afternoon or something <laughs> the stainless steel rat as well okay yes so turning from reading to writing when did you start writing and, and what sort of things did you first write as well as sort of sci-fi and reading always being there writing's kind of always been there as well i don't really know where it came from but it was something people would say to me when i was when i was younger and i wrote stories and they say, oh you should be a writer when you grow up and that kind of stuck and mm. so it's kind of always been i went through phases of wanting to be a, an astronaut or a train driver or whatever but Writing was always there on the back, but I just never really figured that I would find a way to actually do it as a career. So it was always kind of like a dream, but I've always been poking away trying to get things written. I did a yeah. three creative writing lessons at college right? where where they desperately tried to make me write literary fiction and poetry. <laughs> I refused to look at any sci-fi, so I was kind of like a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, but then it, it wasn't until I was about 30, the turn of the millennium, which was seemed like a good time for resolutions that I quit smoking and moved in with my fiance and decided to write a novel seriously. So wow. uh, sounded like you that, had a serious, serious moment or something then just at that point in your life. Yeah, it was kind of like it was the turn of the millennium and I was turning 30. It seemed like a big moment. So it was yeah. very much, you know, uh, do your business or get off the pot kind of moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I went for it and yeah 10 years later the first novel appeared so it was uh so how did you start to get things published how what was what was your first published piece was it a short story or was it a novel or how did that work <laughs> i had a few pieces published here and there when i was younger right uh, i had several short stories published in a, a, a welsh short story magazine yeah uh, and stuff like that but when i started going seriously i had a couple of stories published in various like online things, like Felion, I think was one. Right. 
and where you could post a story and then the the readers would talk about it in the comment section sort of okay. thing. Okay, yeah. So I did a couple of there till I got my confidence up and I submitted a story called The Last Reef to Interzone and, and they took it and uh, the, the original Akak Makak short story as well was the second one they took okay. shortly after. And that immediately led to the my first short story collection, The Last Reef and Other Stories, yes. which came out in 2008 from Elastic Press. And as a result of that, uh, I was approached by Pendragon Press as well for, okay. about my f- first novel, Silver Sand. So it all really came from that interzone short story. Mm. Okay, so somebody noticed your work and, and people started talking to you after that. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned authors that you enjoyed reading. Were there any authors that were particularly influential on you as a writer? Yeah, very much so. After uni, I kind of drifted away from sci-fi for a while. I kind of lost touch with the field. And I decided yeah. to, to get back into writing what I, I really loved. So I went out and brought a load of books. And New Romancer was just like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like a, that's like a shot of coffee. It was just the language was stripped down... Before I was struggling because I was trying to write this kind of techno-centric kind of space adventure in a kind of Larry Niveny, Arthur C. Clarke mould, and I was getting nowhere because it just wasn't me. But once I read Neuromancer, I realised you can have low-life characters. You, you, they don't have to be kind of. You don't have to write about the president of the United States responding to things. You can write about just anyone on the street. And yes. uh, I very much liken it to the first time I heard the Velvet Underground's first album. Right. It was it's that kind of like, oh, everything is different now. And you know, it just make rather than making me want to pick up a guitar, it made me want to sort of rush out and start writing stories. <laughs> I think you can you can see a sort of Gibsonian influence on some of those early short stories, especially yeah. the last reef that appeared in uh, in Interzone. Yes, yeah. Now we're having this conversation just a few weeks after the passing of of a legendary figure in science fiction, that's Ursula K. Le Guin. Was there anything of, of hers that particularly had an effect on you? I remember reading Lathe of Heaven. And okay, being yes, yeah. Sort of confused and disturbed by it at the time. Um, and I've enjoyed her work, Left Hand of Darkness, um, yeah. The Dispossessed as well. That, that, that was a novel I, I struggled with, not because it wasn't compelling but i just was struggling with getting all the ideas straight in my head yes it's it's just so much in there i wouldn't say she's been a direct influence on me in some ways i think we're writing very different sorts of fiction but i have always enjoyed her work yeah i guess it's just part of that hinterland of of work that you've read over the years isn't it that all feels like there's lots of different things now you're best known for your ak ak macaque trilogy the first yeah. book, Ak Ak Macak, won the 2013 BSFA Award for Best Novel. Obviously, it went on to write the two more books from there. What was the inspiration behind those books? And how especially did the idea of the monkey come to you? Well, as, as I mentioned, there was originally a short story back yes, in yeah. 2006 or 2007 in Indonesia about Ak Ak Macak, And it was just a story about uh, an anime character becoming sentient and taking over the web. Um, it's like the monkey that ate the internet. <laughs> and, and and that was a throwaway, and I didn't think much more of it. But I wanted to write um, a series of alternate history, yeah. murder mysteries, basically, so yes. alternate history thrillers. And one of the big themes was what it means to be human. So I had a character with brain damage. I had a character who was a clone but didn't realise they were a clone. Yes. Um, and I had various other characters who, who all were kind of coming at the business of being human slightly differently. Like, am I still human because half my brain is artificial uh, you know am i human because i've been cloned in a lab or whatever and to complete it i wanted someone who could think and talk like human but never had been one 
Yes. So just yeah. coming at it from the opposite direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as soon as I started thinking about that, the monkey was there in my head and yeah. I just couldn't resist. And he immediately took over. So, And he does take over, doesn't he? To a certain extent. He is, he's an incredibly strong personality. Uh, he, wherever he goes really absolutely and it's you know there's there's one scene in there where you know the characters are sitting around debating what to do and he just says blah 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 let's just go out and kill something yeah and it's very difficult to kind of rein in a character like that in fact i think it was he was a good thing for me in that respect because i had to really up my game with the other characters yes yeah to make make them strong enough that he didn't just totally overtake the entire story yeah it it reminds me actually of comments that some writers make where they talk about creating a character who then takes on a life of their own and almost starts to boss the author around or or just takes on much more uh than perhaps the author had originally intended did you did you feel you really had to to kind of rein rein him in a bit sometimes or did you feel that i mean you've alluded to the fact you've you had to kind of up your game how did you manage the monkey uh well he was most fun kind of when he got let off the leash to be honest yeah <laughs> uh, so if i felt that he was going to go somewhere i hadn't anticipated i'd just go with it and see okay. what happened so you you let him just you let him go and see what go- happens from there yeah yeah i mean okay. the, the books were fairly tightly plotted but there were occasions where i had expected one thing to happen and when i'd got gotten to it i thought no this is not what he would do and yeah. he you know, so it would go off and happen happen a bit differently, and I'd have to find a way to kind of bring things back to mm. the uh, the main storyline. But as, as I say, I, I kept the other characters strong, and they kind of kept him in his place. Yes. A bit. Yeah. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about, just talk to you about a little bit, was having read a, a bit of your work. Now, I I get a very strong sense of it having a kind of classic British feel to it, including just reading. Uh, embers of war which obviously is coming out very soon are you conscious of that in your work that it has that that kind of very british sentiment about it and is it something that you think about when you're writing it's not no um it's it's not consciously done i mean obviously i am british but a lot of my favorite authors are as well a Mm. lot of the the people i've taken a great deal of inspiration from sure Uh, and uh, there's kind of I was very influenced by the new space opera writers of the late '90s, early 2000s, yeah. like Al Reynolds, yeah. M. John Harrison, all that lot. So yes. yeah. I have that that kind of that British thing going, but yeah. uh, it's not something I deliberately do. It's just the way I write. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned M. John Harrison as well. So we talked about new romance. So there's a kind of you've got these very British characters, but they're in quite an not anarchic necessarily, but quite a, a subversive environment sometimes. And it's quite gritty and it's quite raw and you never quite know what's going to happen. Um, and I wonder if you recognise that as a sort of feature of your work, that you've got this kind of, we don't quite know what's going to happen, but we'll keep calm and carry on almost or keep calm and shoot people, whatever. And and that's how it's going to work. I, I guess so. But I mean, it's, it's not consciously there. No. It's, it's sort of coming from a facet of my personality or whatever. Right. Uh, before I did the monkey books, I did the recollection for um, yes. Solaris, which obviously feeds into the third Akak novel. Um, but that was much more me kind of, that was much more of my space opera romp, if you like. <laughs> that, you know, just that's the kind of, that's the book I'd wanted to write for years. Um, yeah. And kind of drew, that's really drawing on those influences there and just playing with them. A lot of your work has a very particular sense of humour to it, I think. How do you use humour, do you think, in, in your books? I've got quite a dry sense of humour, I think. Mm. Uh, quite yes. a dead sense of humour. So I don't want 
to kind of undermine the seriousness of a lot of the books by doing too much kind of slapstick or, or, or yeah. if a joke occurs to me while I'm writing or, or a funny comeback or whatever, I'll put it in. But I, I don't consuously kind of set out to, I must have a joke in chapter two or anything like that. No, it's no, just, no, no. Um, the, the, the comedy arises from, from the situations rather yes. than the situations being comedic. I think people who've read your work will, will recognize that it is a, as you say, quite a dry sense of humor. I, I, I wonder if your sense of humour is similar to, to the monkey's sense of humour, because he, he also has something of a dry sense of humour, doesn't he? And yeah, I've, uh, I've described him in the past as he's the uh, Mr Hyde to my Dr Jekyll. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked earlier on about the theme of being human and what it is to be human, and I know this is an important theme for you, so I wondered if you could just expand for us a little bit on how you explore that theme but also maintain a compelling narrative in your work how, how do you treat themes in a way that still means that your work is entertaining and engrossing uh, but you actually make the point and explore the points that you want to deal with if i'm looking at a question like that like with the monkey books they mm. just create characters who are not quite one or the other and through their what happens to them and their experiences and their relationships with the others characters around them they tend to kind of muddle away through that that gives them an insight into into, into the question so in the new book for instance embers of war mm. one of the main viewpoint characters is a sentient starship yes her, her, her mind is mostly artificial but it's based on a small amount of cloned stem cells uh, which were taken mm. from a dying soldier on a battlefield. Mm. So there is that slight humanity in there, and she's it's also she's also got canine genes cut in there as well to give to enforce pack loyalty and so on. I think at one point I describe her as a fourteen year old girl with the um, uh, with all the conscience of a missile or something, and it's <laughs> it's that it's that kind of thing. On one point she's like this conscienceless killing machine and on the yeah. other side there's something very human kind of emerging yes. um, yeah from. so it's it's that there's that kind of it's the tension between the two i think is where you kind of you get to look at what it actually means to be human because mm. it's that gray area between the two yes yeah, so it doesn't really reveal or it doesn't really explore the issue unless you unless you push the characters a little bit unless you put them under pressure or put them in the crucible and see what happens I mean, yeah. I, that, I see that in, in a lot of you. I mean, you see it in, in Akak Makak and other work that you've done. So just on that subject then of being human, what do you think are the important aspects of being human then from the way you've explored that issue in your work? I'm not sure, which is, I think, why continuing to explore it. Okay. I'm trying to find out answers for myself as well as I'm going through. Mm. One thing that comes across quite clearly in my work i think there's there's a lot of themes of being loss of loss um, and guilt and redemption and but there's also i mean the the, the arc of the akak macaque books he goes from being indestructible forever young and, and so on through to being quite an old battered monkey at the mm. end of Mm. Uh, and he goes from being quite reckless to being a little bit more cautious, but if no less deadly. <laughs> uh, but also, he starts to care about people, They're, the, the people around him. He starts yes. to care about them, and he starts to sort of attract this kind of uh, Sats family yeah. that he did before. So it's, it's kind of like it's, it's kind of like a growing up book. It, it's you go from being just young and in it for yourself and reckless to allowing yourself to become more open and vulnerable to other people mm. and to, to you know, admit you're getting a bit older um, and that you do need other people. So from that point of view, those books are almost like a midlife crisis book. Um, <laughs> I think I think there's very much 
obvious in some ways that they were written by a guy just turning 40 with a young family because that's kind of well i suppose you could say that it's somebody who grows older and wiser and manages to kind of work out what the real values in life are or yeah. at least for him at least for him your monkey comes of age doesn't he i suppose and in a sense becomes more human perhaps because of it i don't know you could one could debate that i suppose yeah and, and the the new trilogy as well is very much a lot of it is touching kind of on the themes of friendship and characters who might not necessarily have chosen to be together but have ended up together and there's a lot of conflict but at the same time there's there's a lot of kind of comradeship there mm. that it's that grows throughout throughout the book so yeah it's, it's definitely a theme in my work i don't know where mm. it comes from but mm. it's definitely something that is there I'm sure you're right because I just I'm just thinking about Embers of War now, and uh, when people get to read it, they they'll see at points the, the some of the characters literally are in a confined space, um, yeah. and they have to deal with that. In fact, there's quite a lot of the occasions where pe- people are either in under immense pressure or they are physically in a confined space, and they just have to deal with that, don't they, and work out how they're going to cope with that situation. Yeah, that's one of the aspects of a space opera that's not really addressed in something like Star Wars is that space travel involves being stuck mm. in a small series of rooms with a lot of other people for quite a while. And the, the sort of conflict and the, the, the tension of being confined into the, in these spaces, especially if you're in combat or, or you know running from something, yes. is... It's, as you mentioned a crucible earlier. It's a great crucible to put characters together, yeah, and find them and see what's going to see what happens. Yeah, and, and certainly, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about Embers of War now again and other other bits of it. The relationships between people changes quite dramatically over time. I yeah. think in the, in that story, some some of some of the characters uh, as they deal with the situation that they situations that they find themselves in. Um, now you mentioned earlier on that the, like Akak Makak was quite tightly plotted and I was going to ask you about planning and storylines are you a planner or are you more of a pantser in terms of your approach to story structure I'm about 50-50 I will have an idea where what the ending's going to be sure uh, I'll have a few ideas of things that are going to happen en route but a lot of it is still terra incognito I guess if you could call like somebody who plans everything it was uh, like an ordnance survey map I guess I would probably have a sketch map on the back of a napkin right. is all yeah. my but you know i might mark in where the church and the post office are but i wouldn't have all the contour no. line so it's um, about 50 50 okay and i guess that's compatible with what you were saying earlier like with akak macak you might let the scene go wherever wherever somebody takes it or wherever he takes it and see if that's working for what you want and and so and you can't necessarily do that if you've planned everything down to the nth degree now, another way i write is sometimes i will just write the dialogue first i'll let the okay. characters talk to each other for a chat yeah yeah and that will often take you off in different directions because just the flow of the conversation and how yeah. they to each other yeah. whereas if you're very tightly plotted right this chapter must be about x then it feels a bit laborious putting in the lines like we must do X. Yes, we must do X. Let's go and do X. Yeah, yeah you don't want that. Yeah. If you just let them kind of free form a bit and then go back and fill in all the descriptions afterwards, yeah. they kind of guide you where they're kind of wanting to go. And, you know, if you've set it up properly, then there are very few options they have. So they will go in the right direction. But it makes the motivation more believable because mm. they're talking about why they would do it and, and trying to find other ways to do it and so on. I mean, you're talking there a little bit about characters, and I want to talk to you about characters and the way characters are developed. So, uh, first of all, I wondered if you, if 
if you had a method at all or a process that you go through for developing your characters? I kind of decide who I need to tell the story. Okay. And, and I, I discover them as we go along. Okay. So as I'm writing, I'm discovering stuff about right. them the same way the audience is. Um, so I will have a kind of a, a feel of them and a kind of very rough mental picture of them. But more stuff comes out about them as we go through the book that right. maybe I hadn't fully imagined. So that, that was very much with the Akakma Kerk books. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, some of the minor characters developed quite quite a lot over the course of the three books. Yes. There was uh, the character of Paul, Victoria's dead husband. Mm. Um, in the first book was just, you know, he was just there. He was an electronic recording of a dead murder victim, and he was just there for the plot at the beginning, yeah. just to say. But he survived all three books because he just developed and became interesting and, mm. and his dynamic with victoria became mm. a very interesting part of the story so yeah he survived two and a half books longer than he was supposed to <laughs> yeah and sometimes characters do that don't they 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 hang in there um it sounds as if from what you're saying as well that while some some authors come up with a story and then put the characters into it other authors come up with characters and put a story around them but it sounds as if you are somebody who comes up with a story at least broadly and then auditions as it were the characters finds the characters to go into that story yeah yeah and i think i find the characters as i write but then i find the story as i write as well so a lot of it is, is intuition as much as anything yeah. else i guess for want of a better word it's, yeah. it's yeah. leaping in and trusting everything will come out one of the editors that i interviewed very early on in in my podcast series told me that uh, for her the when it came to characters and when she was looking at work at different people's work and she'd seen a lot of a lot of different work across her desk she was always keen to see what the goal of the character is what their purpose and what their intention is so i wonder do you do you think about that consciously at all when you're when you're writing or when you're planning do you do you have a kind of sense of yes there is a goal for this character or do you does it come more organically than that a lot of the time my characters have goals like they want to survive the situation I put them in and they want to get over something horrible that's happened to them in the past. I don't really have kind of ideas of this character really wants to do, really wants to become a, an ace pilot or this character really wants to find the lost treasure of the Sierra Madre. Hmm. But it's, it's, it's more these, these characters want to get by They want to get through and they want to, um, survive now uh, your latest book embers of war is released on the 20th of february so we're recording this on the 13th of february when when people hear it it may well actually be out but i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how the ideas for this book formed in your mind and what were the important ideas and themes that came to you while you were planning that that work first off i knew i wanted to get back to writing space opera again because I, as i said i'd done uh, my first two novels, Silver Sands and The Recollection, were both space operas. Yes, yeah, they were, but yeah. Then, then I'd done the three monkey books. Yes. And I, I just wanted a change. I wanted to get back to, to spaceships. And yes. I wanted to get away from damn monkeys. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I knew I wanted to do that. Then at the same time, uh, I came across an article about um, the Titanic. Okay. And there was a, a paragraph in there or something which talked about how the Titanic wasn't the first big liner disaster. And there had been others before the Titanic which had lost more lives. I mean, the Titanic, about I think a third of the personnel got off or something. Right. And whereas these other ships had just left, sailed off into the Atlantic and had never been seen again. Nobody ever knew what happened to them. After two or three months, they, they 
were presumed lost. And the difference was the Titanic had a radio. Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah. So it was able to call for help and the Carpathia came and, and whatnot. And so people survived it and were able to tell of the true horror and everything. So ironically, it was the one people survived that became known as the biggest disaster, whereas the ones where everybody died, nobody knew what happened, so nobody could talk about it. Mm. And there was a line in there as well as something along the lines, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, for those early ships, when they were sort of sinking in the mid-Atlantic, they might as well have been on the moon for all the help they could get. <laughs> and I thought, in a kind of space opera setting, if they were sinking today... They would have radios and would have helicopters and, you know, rescue boats yeah, would get sure. them fairly quickly. And I thought in a space opera setting, when you have faster than light communication and faster than light travel, it must be possible to try and rescue ships in distress. So I came up with this idea for this organization that would kind of like Thunderbirds in space, but it would be there <laughs> and it, it would be able to respond to, to ships in distress and the, the whole rest of the the book came from that right that idea so that was the genesis of, of the thing and then and then you took it from there okay now that book is written in first person yeah. uh, so you've made a point of view decision clearly talk point of view decision about that can you tell us a little bit about why you chose first person for it and what what you hoped to achieve by doing that right yeah th this is the first uh, the first novel i've ever written in first person i've written a couple of short stories in it but never a whole novel right and I wasn't sure it was the right tense for a whole novel. And, you know, everything I'd written before that had been written in, in third person. Mm. But then I read a novel called Planetfall by Emma Newman. Okay, yes. Um, who's a friend of mine. But um, that's all completely written in first person. And I really enjoyed it. And mm. I really enjoyed reading it. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, that, that really worked. That, that yeah. really worked for me. Why not, give it a try with these new characters I've got. I'm going to let them speak for themselves. Yes. Especially after with the monkey book, I'd been juggling a large cast of characters as well and, and in the in third person and describing them. So I just gave it a go. And I found as soon as I started writing that it was a whole different way of writing, mm. uh, but it was a, a much more enjoyable way of writing because it became almost like a performance in that I was writing in the characters' voices. I was just letting them talk in some ways mm. rather than kind of sculpting the story. I was just running free and with in the characters voices and letting mm. them talk. So mm. yeah, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it that way. And, 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 uh, and with the sequel book that I've written as well, the, the second one's already written as well. Okay. That works very well in there. And I will, obviously I'll continue the style into the third. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's made a nice change. And I think after, uh, the four books, recollection on the three monkey books for solaris it's it's made a nice change of pace you alluded to some of the morals and some of the themes that you picked up on earlier on so i think yeah. reading embers of war there's quite a bit in there about guilt and justice and remorse and perhaps as well the process by which people come to terms with those things and, and are there, were those themes that you particularly wanted to explore in this book yeah and they kind of came out of, of my initial thinking about the book as well, which was a lot of space opera I read is set in the build-up towards a inter huge interstellar war. You know, the characters trying to prevent the war, yes. the build-up to the war. And even like Game of Thrones, it's all building up to this big war with the, the, the ice zombies. Mm. And I kind of thought, why not set one three years after the war, where the characters have all gone through that, mm. And it's it's now a different world. 
Yeah, so I, I, I guess uh, some people have drawn comparisons with with Firefly on that okay. level. Yeah, interesting. In the, yeah, it's, it's about war veterans and so on, but it's a bit more serious than Firefly. The, the, the war seems to have affected the, um, the characters more, mm. more realistic way, mm. um, and they're not just kind of flying around quipping at each other. They're, yeah, um, I mean, it's not a it's not a band of mercenaries or a band of of adventurers in quite that way is it each they've all they're all well not all of them but a lot of them are still paying the price aren't they they're all dealing with and wrestling with this stuff absolutely and they're all trying to in some way atone for what they've done by mm. rescuing people rather than killing them yeah so um yeah so it's it's kind of like a, a serious firefly in some ways <laughs> and brings us back i think to some of the things you were saying about what it means to be human and what it means to grow as a human I think to to yeah. to react perhaps to the aftermath of trauma and war, uh, and and to explore how to cope with those things and live with them. Now you mentioned the ship in Embers of War earlier on, and your ships do have personalities, and they're kind of human but not human. And when I was reading that book, obviously at one level I was reminded of the kind of classic ship personalities that Ian M. Banks used to create, but your yeah. ones are, are different, I think, in that they're much more tied into and invested in the people who crew them. Uh, yeah. I presume was that a conscious decision, and what what would you what were you, did you want to do it, with your it ships? It was. I kind of well, I was I was thinking. I mean, I love the Ian M. Banks books mm. to, to pieces. The culture books they're just amazing, but I didn't want to just do a kind of straight copy. No, no, no. Of those tempting as it would be, <laughs> um, but I thought you know if you're going to have a warship. So when I was thinking about the trouble dog, even though she accidentally grows a conscience, she's kind of programmed not to feel remorse. She's programmed to be, as I say, she's got canine genes and so on spliced into yes, her to, to yes. reinforce loyalty. So she's, because these people who built these battleships didn't want to build an intelligent battleship that might turn round on them or, you know, might refuse to fight sure. or, or might decide that, you know, they wanted to switch sides or something. So <laughs> they they kind of built in a lot of safeguards and a lot of loyalty. So a lot of the time through the book, she's struggling against what she was built to be and what she feels like. And the, mm. the two conflict a lot because she's, you know, her, her mind has changed and developed, almost trying to breaking her programming in some way in, the, in, the, in that classic mm. sense. She's, mm. she's very much been designed for a purpose as opposed to, let's just have a super intelligent ship knocking about and hope it does what yeah. we want it to. Yeah. It, these are tools, they're intelligent, but they're tools. So it's her journey from being a, a, a tool to, to, to being a, a fully formed individual. Mm. And actually it's much more nuanced, as, as you say, than just kind of, here's a massive ship, it's incredibly intelligent and it shoots people a lot. It's, yeah. there's, she becomes, almost despite herself, a rebel against yeah. the things that she was built for. Uh, and I suppose it's that. So she's, it's almost like she's on the journey, like the rest of them are, towards something, towards yeah. becoming the, the person, I use the term person loosely, that she should be. I mean, it, and certainly, like, not all the crew are human, in fact, are they on, on this ship? No. No, there's, there's one alien crew member um, who was also a great deal of fun to write. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, because he's, he's got such a different viewpoint to everybody else. Um, I don't want to give too much away. No, 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 no. Uh, but I, I, I basically I gave him quite an unusual physiology, and then kind of tried to go with it and to yes. 
show how that shaped his his beliefs and his uh, his attitude towards everything. So he's hopefully quite a um, quite a fun individual as well. That, uh, oh, he is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you say that um, his physiology does, and maybe this is true of humans as well. That his physiology does inform his beliefs, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And and the way he the way he sees the world and the way he reacts with the rest of his own kind and and conceives of his society and community is a function of how he is but also i think i don't know whether you'd agree with this he his physiology is very well suited to his job on the ship yeah you know he he's he's an ideal ship's engineer isn't he the way the way he is and the way the things he does yeah that that's um that's why you know every, every ship um carries one of these these engineers and mm. that's something that will come to be explored further in the trilogy as we go on sure and and if people are intrigued by just what this guy is like then they can they can get the book and have a look at it and find out um so i wanted to turn now to your life as a writer uh, this is always something that i know people who are listening to this are interested in now i know for example so you uh, you've got kids and you have so you've got a number of sort of other things going on in your life. How do you how do you balance everything? How do you balance, say, personal life and professional life, and, and make that work for you as a writer? Well, I'm quite fortunate. I've got an office in the back of the house, right. uh, which, which is my writing area, and my wife uh, works almost full time, and uh, the kids are at school. So I get up um, and see them all off, and then. Yeah. I've got the the day to to juggle housework and and writing and other things and cats and whatnot. <laughs> and um, so I, I get most of my writing done in the uh, during the day or and occasionally in the when the girls were younger. I used to do a lot in the evenings. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Now they now they're getting older. They're up till ten or eleven o'clock at night. So. Yeah. I don't get much time in the evenings anymore. But it's uh, it's mostly done during the day while everyone else is out. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you ever, for example, feel that you need to get out of the house to do some writing, or do you have different routines for whether you're editing versus whether you're when you're writing, or do you ever try and kind of like fence off time for certain things, or do anything else like that at all? No, I just kind of go with what I feel like. To be honest, I don't get out enough. To be honest, I'm a bit of a hermit in that I will try and use every moment that they're out at school, sitting at my desk and, and working on something. Because there's all the other stuff that goes with being a writer, like blog posts and, yeah, and of course. social media and, and, and whatnot. So I try and use every moment. So I should get out more. I should go out for more walks and what have you. I've, I've written on trains and I've written in coffee shops and stuff. But the way I write just takes such a lot of time that I wouldn't want to be sitting in a coffee shop. I'd go bankrupt <laughs> in a coffee shop and they, they, you know, just sitting there all day. So yeah. I just find it easier at home. I do use a lot of white noise. There's on YouTube. There's a, a three-hour video of coffee shop noise, which is just you know clinking yeah. plates and, and a bubble of people talking, but you can't really hear what they're saying. Yeah, sure. And I, I find that that is quite good because that kind of distracts my mind in one way and, right. and lets me lets me focus in another. So I can see the attraction, but it, it, I'd rather be at home at my desk. Yeah. And so, what are you working on now? I don't. Obviously, you can't tell us everything about it. But what, what sort of things have you been, say, just finishing off, and what sort of things are coming up in the future for you? Different projects you're you're focused on. Well, the second Embers of War book, which is called Fleet of Knives, is currently with my editor at Titan. Um, so that's written and um, just awaiting awaiting some edits. Yeah. 
and I'm a little way into the third one, which right. is called Light of Impossible Stars, and that will be that will be released in 2020. So we're, we're looking a bit ahead. Aside from that, I've got the f- the first third of a crime fiction novella. Ah, okay. Uh, not novella, sorry, novel yeah. that I'm working on, which is a complete change of genre and uh, yeah. everything. So that's a bit of an experiment, but I'm having fun with that. And then I'm hoping to write a whole bunch more space opera in the future as well. So it's, yeah, it's it's basically finishing off this trilogy. Mm. It, it's my number one priority because I have until October to hand in the third book and, and then finish off the crime novel and see if that opens up a whole new readership for me. I think yes. I'll probably release that one under a pseudonym, a very easily seen through pseudonym like gl powell or something <laughs> but okay yeah but just to distinguish it from the, yes. you know, pick up a, one of the monkey books and then they pick up this crime novel set in Aberystwyth and think oh blimey that's a bit of a cognitive dissonance yeah, yeah so um like you mentioned ian banks earlier like he did with his ian yeah he did that banks fiction and ian m banks sci-fi yes. so yes. yeah just to to, just to make the difference but yeah after that then you know i'm just going to keep writing books as long as i can and what advice would you give to aspiring writers what are the kind of top two or three tips that you have marry well um <laughs> also um i would say, I'd say write first edit later yes uh, yeah because you can spend months 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 trying to perfect the beginning of the story and then when you get to the end you have to go back and change it anyway so just write the whole story before you go back and start trying right so so you'd you'd be an advocate of power through that first draft don't stop and fiddle around with it too much get it done yeah Yeah, i I do tend to edit on the fly quite a lot so as i'm writing i'll think oh i need to go back and change that and change this but as long as i keep moving forward yeah yeah as i say i've known people who've been working on the first chapter of their book for three or four years and often when you get to the end of a book the ending will change how it should have started so you'll have to go back and change it anyway so yeah. power through get that first draft done yeah. um, and then polish it afterwards um now you you mentioned as well that the fact that you use social media a fair bit how do you as a writer use social media what what does it do for you and how do you how do you use it I, I use it several different ways, really. I use it to chat to friends and colleagues. Uh, it's like kind of like my office water cooler yeah. because I work at home, and I, you know, I'm used, before I used to work in an office with loads of other people, so it's, it can be a bit lonely working at home. So sure. it, it's great just to chat to people. Also, I, I keep up to date with industry gossip and, and happenings and so on, and book launches and, and whatnot. And I, I use it to engage talk to my readers as well and mm. they're always quite happy to let me know what they think of things and, and it's really good from that point of view and recently i started using it to kind of encourage aspiring writers as well just to kind of give back in some way because there's a lot of stuff i had to find out as i went along right yeah nobody told me or i you know found out the hard way that yeah I yeah so, so i'm starting to give back and just answer questions on twitter from sure. anybody Come, you know, people come and say, "I need a name for a character," or "This bit of my plot isn't working," or whatever. So I just, you know, give out some free advice, and, yeah. and, and it's all good, good karma. So, <laughs> yes, I but, suppose it's what goes around comes around, isn't it? And if it's if you're giving out the good stuff, it'll it'll come back. Now, I know that you are on Twitter and you do offer to help people. Maybe it's maybe now is a good moment for you to share your your Twitter handle actually for anybody who wants to kind of track you down and follow you. Oh, it's it's at Gareth. L 
Powell, P O W E W L. So at Gareth L Powell, it's 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 fairly straightforward. Cool. Does what it says on the tin, but yeah, yeah, I'm quite findable. When this podcast goes out, I think Embers of War will probably be just published. Yeah. Uh, so how do people find that? How do people find out what you're up to and find out about your other work? There's on my website, which is www.garethlpowell.com. There are lists of all my books on there and links to amazon.com, amazon.uk, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and so on. So you should be able to find them in all good bookstores, as they say, but there are links on my page as well. Good. So that's it for all the questions I had, Gareth. I just want to say thank you very much to you for your time. It's been quite fascinating, in fact, talking about some of like your new book and, and themes and what it is to be human and all that kind of stuff. I think we could have spent quite a bit of time exploring that. OK, well, thanks again for your time. Great. Thanks very much. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Gareth. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. Mm-hmm.